We're starting a three-week series in the book of Hosea. <clears throat> Hosea as a book uh, has an overarching theme. It uh, consists of a series of oracles that would have been delivered uh, to the prophet at different times and are collected together in, in this one book. And we will be touching different places in the course of this Sunday, next Sunday, and the following Sunday. So here... The word of the Lord from Hosea. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the son of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, Call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No mercy, for I will have no more mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. When she had weaned no mercy... She conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And then in chapter 2, God speaking to the children of Gomer. Plead with your mother... Plead, for she is not my wife and I am not her husband, that she put away her whoring from her face and her adultery from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and make her as in the day she was born and make her like a wilderness. For she said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. Further down in that same chapter. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. For there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, You will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. For I will remove the names of the Baals from her mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more. And I will make for them a covenant on that day with the beasts of the field and the birds of the heavens and the creeping things on the ground. And I will abolish the bow, the sword, and war from the land. And I will make you lie down in safety. 
I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness. And you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I will answer the heavens and they shall answer the earth and the earth shall answer the grain, the wine and the oil and they shall answer Jezreel and I will sow her for myself in the land and I will have mercy on no mercy. And I will say to not my people, you are my people. And he shall say, you are my God. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord God, you are our God. And we ask that you would speak to us today. Amen. At 5 p.m. this past Halloween... My final paper for my most recent class at Reformed Theological Seminary was due. And I emailed that paper to my professor at around 4.59 p.m. The day before Halloween, as I was madly trying to pull this mess together into some kind of coherent whole, I, I got an email from the seminary telling me that it was time to register for the January course. The work for the one class was not yet over, and already I was being asked to sign up for the next class, and so I signed up on November 1st. I'll be taking a class titled Puritan Theology and Ministry. The professor is Joel Beek, who happens to be the president of something called Puritan Reform Theological Seminary out there in Grand Rapids, Michigan, which is the epicenter of the American Dutch Reformed Calvinist movement. Beek is a prolific Puritan scholar, and I already have a large stack of books by and about the Puritans, which I've begun to read for this class. And first on my reading list is The Religious Affections. A book by Jonathan Edwards. And this particular book has been on my theological radar for a long time, though I've never gotten around to reading it. When I was an undergraduate at Marlboro College in Vermont, the New England Puritans were very much on people's minds, and I got a healthy dose of sermons by Edwards in my American history classes there. Jonathan Edwards' sermon titled, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, Google it when you go home, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, you can, you can hear it preached there, is perhaps the most cited American sermon of all times. And if you go to Enfield, Connecticut today, you can see a monument at the place where Edwards preached that sermon in 1741, in my early 30s. When I was coming back to faith and coming back to the church, it was at Belfield Presbyterian Church in Pittsburgh, and the pastor there at that time was the Reverend Lou Mitchell, who at that time was working on his Ph.D. at Harvard Divinity School, writing a dissertation on Jonathan Edwards. And it was this book, The Religious Affections, that Lou Mitchell had his staff reading as part of their ongoing professional development. So now... 
finally, I'm getting around to reading this book, and I think it might be big for me. I think it's going to be a game changer. And I think that our staff will be reading this book because I don't want to hog all of the fun for myself. This morning, I'm going to take a few pages of this sermon to explain Edwards's thesis in this book because it bears on the book of Hosea, which we're going to be looking at for the next three Sundays. Now, some of Edwards's language is old-fashioned. He was, after all, born more than 300 years ago. But let me quote some bits and pieces of his book and then see if we can make some sense of it. Edwards' thesis is this. True religion in great part, consists in holy affections. True religion, in great part, consists in holy, H-O-L-Y, affections. Now, Edwards uses this word affections in a slightly different way than we use it today. He writes by way of explanation, quote, The affections are no other than the more vigorous and sensible exercises of the inclination and the will of the soul. In other words, an affection, as Edwards uses the term, is any leaning toward or leaning away from something. On my kitchen counter, there is a bowl of rocky road ice cream. I lean toward that. And next to it, there is a bowl of lima beans. And I lean away from that. Those are affections. Strong positive affections we call love. Strong negative affections we call hate. So let me repeat Edward's thesis. True religion in great part consists in holy affections. Or we can say true religion in great part consists in holy loves and holy hates. Now, before we head too far down that direction, we need to grasp a distinction Edwards makes between understanding and affections. And, yes, there will be a quiz at the end of this sermon. So let me first read Edwards. He writes, quote, God has endued the soul with two faculties... One is that by which it is capable of perception and speculation or by which it discerns and views and judges things, which is called the understanding. The other faculty is that by which the soul does not merely perceive and view things, but is some way inclined with respect to the things that it views. Either is inclined to them or is disinclined from them. Or is the faculty by which the soul does not behold things as an indifferent, unaffected spectator, but either as liking or disliking, pleased or displeased, approving or rejecting. This faculty is called by various names. It is sometimes called the inclination. And as it has respect to the actions that are determined and governed by it, it is called the will And the mind, with regard to the exercise of this faculty, is often called the heart. Thank you for enduring that very long quotation. (laughs) Edwards is distinguishing two kinds of mental powers. He uses this old-fashioned word, faculties. I like that word. 
One faculty is the understanding by which we simply discern or know something. The other is the faculty of inclination or will or the heart which either leans toward the thing that it knows or leans away from the thing that it knows. Understanding produces knowledge, but the will or the heart produces affections. And to repeat Edward's thesis, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. To use my previous example, my understanding tells me that there are two bowls on my kitchen counter. One filled with delicious ice cream, the other filled with disgusting lima beans. And my will, my heart causes me to lean toward the one and to throw the other away. My understanding produces knowledge. There are two bowls on my counter. But my heart produces affections which produce actions. Eat one bowl, throw the other bowl away. And Edwards is saying that it is this second faculty, the will or the heart, which is vital To true religion. True religion in great part consists in holy affections. While understanding produces knowledge, it is perfectly indifferent about the things that it knows. It's a kind of cold scientific detachment. But the heart, with its affections, cares. And because it cares, it acts. Though he was a great intellectual, many consider Jonathan Edwards to be America's first philosopher. Though Edwards was a great intellectual, he is saying that head knowledge, understanding alone, is not enough to have true religion. The heart and the will with their affections both for and against must also be engaged. And in fact, true religion in great part consists in holy affections. We need both, understanding and affections. In our religious life, both uh, both of our mental faculties, our understanding and our will, need to be engaged. In our religious life, we need to have both knowledge of God and affection for God. What good will it do us to know facts about God if we don't love Him? What good will it do us to understand the things that offend God if we don't hate them? We need to have a head that understands what God revealed to us and hearts that love the things that God loves and hates the things that God hates. Only then do we have true religion. That's Edward's point. Holy affections and knowledge Those are the components of true religion, which brings us to Hosea, where in chapter 4, verse 1, we read, Hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. Both holy affections, faithfulness and steadfast love, and knowledge of God are missing. And so God says that he has a controversy with these people. He has a beef with them. And he sends Hosea to bring his message. After King David and after King Solomon, the kingdom of the twelve tribes of Israel split into two parts. 
Ten tribes formed a northern kingdom which had its capital at Samaria. It was called Israel. And then two tribes formed a southern kingdom which had its capital at Jerusalem and it was called Judah. Hosea was a prophet in the northern kingdom and he lived about 750 years before Jesus. During his life, the kingdom of Israel was guilty of forsaking the Lord. Guilty of chasing after false gods, of mixing worship of Yahweh with worship of Baal. Baal was a fertility god who promised good harvests and large flocks of animals. Today, if we worshiped Baal, we would go to him to get a better rate of return on our investments. The kingdom of Israel also tried to secure its political well-being by forming alliances first with pagan Egypt and then with pagan Assyria, selling Israel's independence to the highest bidder to whichever global power could offer them more security. The affections of Israel were all over the place. First with this God and then with that God. First with this kingdom, then with that empire. God says the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. And God is not happy. In fact, he's so unhappy with the faithlessness of the kingdom of Israel that he promises through the mouth of Hosea that the kingdom will be destroyed. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel, is what God says in Hosea 1.4. And guess what? That's exactly what happened. Not long after Hosea brings that prophecy, the Assyrian Empire invades in the year 722 B.C. And the kingdom of Israel ceases to exist, never to be resurrected again. God brings his message to his people... In the strangest way, because God's people are being unfaithful to him, God tells his prophet Hosea to go marry an unfaithful woman. Because God's people are whoring around with whatever the world has to offer, God tells his prophet Hosea to go marry a whore. Now maybe that word whore is too rough for polite Presbyterians. But it is an old and distinguished English word. The earliest citations of this illustrious word in the Oxford English Dictionary dates from the year 1200. It's a long time ago. That's before Chaucer. Whore. A woman who sells sex for money. That was God's accusation against Israel. And poor Hosea. The unfortunate prophet of God, his wife's a whore and he's a cuckold and his miserable life is a living parable of God's accusation against Israel. The book of Hosea is a collection of oracles given over the course of a number of years in which God alternately berates Israel for her infidelity and tenderly woos Israel, calling her back to faithfulness. God is is the broken-hearted but faithful husband in this picture, and Israel is indifferent and faithless. Hosea, the husband of an unfaithful woman, must have had a special understanding of what God was talking about. 
True religion in great part consists in holy affections. Our affections determine how we will act and what we will do. Our affections, the things that make our hearts glad, the things that stir up our holy rage, our affections, much more than our understanding or our knowledge, the things that our brains know determine how we will act and what we'll do. We're a pretty brainy congregation here at HVPC. We take the Bible seriously. We think about theology. But I believe that we are at risk of thinking that if we know all the right answers, then we're okay with God and God is pleased with us. If we say the right words or offer the correct interpretations, then we're okay with God and God is pleased with us. But here's my concern for us. I'm not so sure that our hearts are in the right place. I'm not so sure that we want the right things. I'm not so sure that we're filled with holy affections. Because if we were, if we were filled with holy affections, if we burned with love for the things that God loves... If we burned with hate for the things that God hates, what would our lives look like? What would this church look like? I think a lot of us have some really good Bible knowledge and some pretty good theology. But I'm not so sure about our hearts. Because I see a lot of us chasing after stuff That doesn't look very much like Jesus. Have you ever seen someone who's in love? It's easy to tell. Because they only have eyes for the one that they love. They can't stay away. They can't keep their hands off them. And when they are away, when they're forced to be separated, all they can do is think about their beloved. Are we in love with Jesus? I'm not so sure. I'm not so sure if we're burning with love about the things that Jesus loves. Because I know that Jesus loves every member of this congregation. But I also know that not every member of this congregation loves every other member of this congregation. Well, maybe they do hypothetically or theoretically. But the words I hear and the actions I see tell a different story. I'm not so sure if we're burning with love for the things that Jesus loves because I know that Jesus is the shepherd desperately looking for that one lost sheep, even if that means leaving 99 sheep untended for a moment. And I know that some of the sheep of this fold make their displeasure known when the work of this church is directed toward finding the lost rather than coddling the found. Hypothetically and theoretically, yes, we love missions. We love Joe Darrow. We're glad that he's doing that work for us down in Kensington. But don't let it mess the status quo here. I could multiply examples all day long. Examples of 
how we demonstrate that our love for Jesus is not exclusive. I'm not saying that we don't love Jesus. But we love some other things too. Examples of how we are not faithful to our calling as Christians. Of how we are happy to have Jesus as part of the mix. But let's not get all crazy and say he's our one true love. It is Jesus who says in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now that word hate there might seem over the top to you. But Jesus is making a strong point. He's saying that discipleship is costly. He's saying that discipleship is like faithful marriage. And in faithful marriage, there can be no competing loves and loyalties. Describing marriage in Ephesians 5.31, Paul writes, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. To be married faithfully means you live in one house with one spouse. Gomer, Hosea's unfaithful wife, was never content to stay at home. Because when she went to her lover's houses, they gave her good things. Bread and wine and wool and Flax and oil. She had divided loyalties. Oh, she didn't divorce Hosea. But she went around from house to house collecting the stuff that she wanted in life, trading her devotion and loyalties for baubles and gugaws. So how about us? Are we faithful disciples of Jesus, exclusive in our loyalties to Him, or are we making the rounds? I think we, as a church, have come to a point where we need to recommit ourselves to our first love, to Jesus Christ. I think we need to own up to the reality that we have been fooling around a whole lot of stuff that isn't Jesus. And we need to get back. Now I'm talking about born-again Christians. I'm not talking about the unsaved. I'm talking about born-again Christians who might even have a very well-developed understanding of the faith. I think for a season here at HVPC, we need to focus our attentions on our affections. I think we need to take a good, hard look at what is motivating us, at what makes us thrill with delight, at what makes us shrink with horror. And we need to ask ourselves, are my affections godly? Or am I whoring around? Now don't think that I'm beating up on you or giving you a guilt trip. Because you know I'm always preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. But I've been with you a long time. And I know you well. And my sense at this point 
is that what's holding this church back from a prodigious revival is our hearts, our divided affections. I have a sense that God is ready to bust open this little old church and deluge us with an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit if only our hearts were in the right place. I think our heads are screwed on right. But I think our hearts are wandering. I think we're half-hearted lovers. And I know that Jesus wants us all. In Hosea's day, God said to the unfaithful kingdom of Israel, I will allure her and bring her back into the wilderness and speak to her tenderly. God wants us back. God says to us, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you will know I am Lord. I believe that the word of Hosea is God's word to us today. May we hear his word. Let us pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word and we thank you for your prophet. Lord, we pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, that your word would find its way into our hearts. God, we do love you. But we confess that we love other things as well. Lord, you do meet our needs, but we confess that we are getting our needs met in someone else's house. Lord, you have offered us Salvation, redemption, glorification, justification. You've given us a way of safety, a path of life, a path that will allow our lives to be not only eternal, but also meaningful and rich and fruitful lives that will make a difference, lives that are going to count. But we confess that we sometimes flirt with other lifestyles. So we pray this day that you would turn our hearts to you. Lord, we pray that you would restore to us our first love of you. That wonder when we first found you, when we 
first discovered that you were Lord and Savior and that we were redeemed. I pray that you would rekindle our love for you. I pray that you would give us the spine to reject and to walk away from those things that compete for your attention. Lord, we pray that you would be honored and glorified in our lives and in this church. We pray this in your holy name. Amen.